Okay. Hi, I'm Chris Clifton from here at Purdue, and uh, I'm doing my in own introduction today and taking my chance to talk to you. Uh, following up last week's talk on what is information, we're going to talk a little bit about what is privacy. And I'm going to introduce a few metrics that have been presented in the literature, point out some things that work with them, some things that don't. And hopefully start a discussion going here about what, what really is, what is privacy, how do we say we have it? How do we use information and still maintain privacy? Uh, first thing is distinguishing privacy from confidentiality. Confidentiality means nobody sees information except the people authorized to see it. Uh, privacy is a bit different from that, and we'll see some examples. But one of the key things about privacy is if the information is not private, you don't worry about people seeing it. You don't have to worry about authorization. It, and the private information, it, it's where that distinction is between the two that gets difficult. So what does privacy mean? Well, one definition coming, uh, to paraphrase Webster, is freedom from unauthorized intrusion. So if we have an authorized intrusion, well, that's not a privacy violation. But if the use of the data is not specifically authorized, does that violate privacy? Well, any, any thoughts on that? So I haven't authorized you to use my data. Does your using that violate my privacy? Well, is it intrusion? Does it constitute an intrusion? That's that's a key point here. And if we, if we can better understand that, we can much better make this trade-off between being able to use data and having to keep it hidden and locked in a box. So what are some of the, what's some of the background uh, on this? If we try to op operationalize this concept of intrusion, one of the things we see is that privacy, when you're talking about data, privacy really only applies to individually identifiable data. Uh, if you look at the HIPAA, the U.S. Healthcare Information Portability and Accountability Act, which talks about and provides some rules for data privacy, these rules on privacy only apply to data that can be traced to an individual. And there's some use that is specifically allowed. Generally, under these privacy laws, if the data is needed to do something for that individual that that individual would like to have done, then it's okay to use the data. So if, for example, I go to buy an airline ticket, and I go to the United website and buy an airline ticket, but uh, the second flight is on U.S. Air, well, even though I have not told United, okay, you can share my data with US Airways, that's okay, because it's needed to provide that service that I have requested. And most privacy laws do allow such use. But sometimes use is allowed, even if it, you know, so in that case it's viewed as it's not being an intrusion. It's something that you want done. So how about this non-individually identifiable data? What 
if data can't be traced to an individual? Well, then it's not private. Then we can use it. How do you ensure that it can't be traced? Well, the, the key problem is here is there may be some sort of a candidate key for the database people among you in the non-identifier information. In other words, there's a unique value. Uh, what's worse, it doesn't even have to be a candidate key. It just has to be a unique value for some individuals, not everyone. Uh, so an example of this, uh, in a few years back, Latanya Sweeney uh, did a study looking at public information and linking public information with supposedly private information and anonymized. So in this one case, she purchased the voter registration lists for Cambridge, Massachusetts. The list of registered voters is a matter of public record in the US. That is not private information. That contains things like your name, age, address. It does not contain how you vote, just, in fact, it, most states it contains if you vote, just not how you vote. And you think of it, you probably do want that to be a matter of public record. If that wasn't a matter of public record, there'd probably still be all these people in Philadelphia voting regularly, all living at the same address. Um, it's one of these places that, you know, the, you go to the address and all these people have their individual little apartments with these, these concrete stones above their heads. Uh, yes. They had a graveyard vote in Philadelphia where the registered address of these people was in fact the graveyard. And these people voted very regularly and presumably voted for the same candidate. Well, taking this voter list information, which you really want public, and medical data that 37 US states mandate that this be collected and make it available because it's anonymous, you know. There's no name in this. But it turned out that this did include the zip code for your address, not the complete address, because obviously that would be a violation of privacy. Contained the birth date, a lot of people born on the same day, and contained your gender. Well, if you link those together, take those two, two and join them, you do get some unique matches. How many do you think you get? How many people do you think would be, you know, if we were to do this, how many people in this room do you think would be able to be uniquely identified by looking at those attributes? A quarter. He says a quarter. Now here are any other figures. It's scary without even using gender, just the postal code and birth date, you get 69%. Once you add up all three, 87%. It turned out that the state was collecting this anonymous information that was largely individually identifiable using publicly available information. Um, actually, this came out when Latanya Sweeney was asked to testify in a, as an expert witness in a Freedom of Information Act request where a newspaper was asking to get this medical data. Uh, 
they determined that no, this did not fall under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, thank goodness. So one solution to this, canonymity. And let me just briefly describe this for those that haven't heard it. The idea behind canonymity is that you have these quasi-identifiers. This information that can be used to discriminate between individuals. That an adversary may know this information about an individual and can use that to discriminate between individuals. A K-anonymous data set is one where in the release data, if there is any individual in the release data, there are at least K total individuals with exactly the same information in those quasi-identifiers. So for example, that would say that if there were a dozen people that had the same birth date and gender within a zip code, this would be a 12 anonymous database, and then we might say this is sufficiently anonymous, we can release this. Uh, So this, this is a one notion of privacy, this notion of canonymity. Uh, advantage, you know, well, is something individually identifiable? Well, you can only limit it. You can say, well, this is only true about a set of people. It's not an individual. It is some group. So it's no longer individually identifiable. How would you do this? Well, instead of the birth date, maybe we just give the year. Instead of the zip code, maybe we only give the first few digits of the zip code. We generalize the data. Uh, maybe instead of gender, we don't give gender, we suppress the data. There's things you do to make the data more general. Uh, there's some limitations to it. So here's an example of a two anonymous data set. Uh, so we can see, for example, we have uh, two, uh, let's see, two people with an advanced degree. You know, maybe one of them has a master's, one of them has a PhD. That would allow us to distinguish between them. But this just says they both have an advanced degree, and they're in zip code 4790-something, and age is in the range 40 to 50. But can anybody see a problem with this? You know, say we're, we're interested in detecting our enemies here. You know, we want to know if someone has been proclaimed to be one of our enemies. But, you know, you really don't want to be in this database and announced as an enemy. Uh, well, it's anonymous, so that shouldn't be a problem. Does anyone see the problem with this? You don't have 30 to 40. Well... It's, it's worse than that, even with just these number of people. Say I know that someone is, you know, I've got an individual, and I know they're 48 years old, they have an advanced degree, and they live in Bloomington, 4740-something. Do I know if they're an enemy or not from this data set? It's a good chance. Well... I only have two individuals that meet that criteria. I have two individuals that meet that criteria. So it's 
anonymous. I don't know which, rec which individual that is. But if you look over here, both those individuals have the same criteria for the sensitive variable. So we've still revealed the sensitive information about this individual, even though we have met the canonymity requirements. So that's one problem with canonymity, is it doesn't really take into account that there may be some sensitivity to data and that that's what you're really trying to protect. Oh, there. So there's been another approach to this. Actually, uh, most recently you'll help hear people talk about L-diversity, although originally and independently it was developed as discernibility. Uh, the idea behind this L-diversity and discernibility <laughs> is you start with canonymity, but then you also require that within any canonymous block, the sensitive values have to be well represented. Uh, where well represented is this parameter L. It's L diverse if, uh, if there is this parameter L level of di diversity or, or dis discrepancies among what we might think ascribed to an individual. So one example would be we could use entropy within that block. What is the entropy? Because I mean, one problem is you might say, well, what, what does that diversity mean? Say if I were to uh, look at gender of the incoming freshman class in computer science, and I insisted that to have this anonymity, anonymity factor that any block had to have an even distribution between men and women. Am I going to be able to do a good job of that? Well, it's going to turn out to be very difficult to do because we tend to have a very gender biased um, sample that we're drawing from. So. One way to handle this is to say that within any block, the entropy among those sensitive values must be comparable to larger blocks. And so using, this, using concepts like this, and I would encourage you to read actually a just out, uh, although I list this as 05, there is a IEEE Transactions on Knowledge and Data Engineering journal article out by the folks at Cornell that goes into considerably more detail on this and really talks about how you can can use this to ensure some level of privacy. Okay. We can go even even farther in some of these and uh, this is some well folks at Stanford Microsoft Research, uh, Cynthia Dvork Chala, uh, I don't Smith. I don't remember the M and W exactly what they stand for off the top of my head. But this takes almost a, a geometric view or, or a numeric view to it. That it's not just about a specific fixed database. What we're talking now is that a 
a, a point should not be isolated in space. That there should be some uncertainty. And the idea behind this CT isolation concept is that we have some query that will retrieve us a set of points. And the query CT isolates a point if a space that is centered on the query and whose width is C times the distance between the query and this point contains fewer than T points. So let me quickly draw this up if we can, how do I go about switching to the overhead camera? Is there a way I can get this? Uh, yeah, it's gone. Okay, so if we switch to the overhead camera and take a quick look, uh, we may have a query point here. So here's, here's Q. Over here is a point and just to make it simple, we'll use C equal 2. So here's, our, here's a point uh, Y. Uh, what we do is we take this distance, go out C beyond it, look at a ball around this space, and then count the number of other points. If there are T points within this space, then we're deemed to have met this requirement. If there are fewer than t, then we've isolated this point. Well, where this definition starts to get interesting is if you say, what are the possible queries we could ask about the data set? And does CT isolation fail for every combination of these queries? In other words, is there no way that we can isolate that point? If so, we have our level of anonymity. So, you know, again, there are some, some real challenges in this. I'm not going to go into the, the details on this uh, because it is a very challenging, uh, very, very challenging paper, difficult to, you know, when you get into the real details of, of how do you prove this across a space of queries. Okay. But a lot of this, I mean, this begs a very big question. How do we set these parameters? You know, I've said K anonymity, L diversity. There's all these open letters and you know CT. How do we come up with some meaningful measures? But it turns out it's kind of interesting. What does HIPAA, the U.S. healthcare rules, say? Well, what they say is there is no reasonable basis to believe that the information can be used to identify an individual. What does identify an individual? If I can say, here's a medical record, and I know it belongs to either Faribors or Randy, but I have no idea which one. But since you can't tell which one, it's not I traced to an individual, I'm going to take this medical record and just pass it around the room. How many of you would feel that I am not violating someone's privacy? How many of you would feel that I, that I am violating privacy by doing this? Right. Most of you would. I would. I certainly wouldn't trust that. Uh, so clearly that's not what the law means when it says identify an individual. On the other hand, 
what if I were to say, oh, here is a medical record, but there is no way, you know, I'll tell you that this medical record belongs to someone in Chicago. And it's an interesting case from a, a research point of view. It's a, it's a useful thing to study. But there is no way from studying this that you could identify which person it is in Chicago any more likely than anybody else. I mean, you just take a, a random guess. It's as equally likely to belong to someone living in the loop as to some other person living on the south side. And you have no way of... of Justifying that. How many of you would feel that making that available, you know, putting that in a textbook, is going to be a violation of privacy? How many of you would think that's an okay thing to do? Yeah. It really changes. The difference between two and two million uh, is quite significant in terms of anonymity. But where is this break? Well, the HIPAA safe harbor rules give us a hint. They talk about things you have to remove. Well, it, it's not have to remove. There's two ways to meet the, to deem data to be not individually identifiable. The first is this statement at the top of the slide. No reasonable basis to believe. Nobody knows what that means. The second is if you remove certain identifying information, the information is deemed to be not individually identifiable. <coughs> Most of these are things like things that are obvious. No name, no telephone number, no social security number, no account number, no dates finer than a year. You can have someone's year of birth, you can have someone's uh, you can have someone's year that they were received a treatment. Uh, there is a slight exception to that. Uh, publishing a year of birth for someone born in 1910 would not be acceptable. Anything, any year that would identify someone as belonging to the segment of the population that is over 90 years of age must just be put as this is someone over 90 years of age. You can't put the actual year. So that kind of gives you another idea. Uh, geographic information. I say less than 20,000 people. Well, it's not quite that. It actually says, the, the real text of it says first three digits of zip code unless the first three digits of the zip code is an area that contains fewer than 20,000 people, in which case you use 000 for the first three digits of the zip code. Eh, strange rule, but basically what it comes down to is they consider any geographic restriction finer than 20,000 people to be suspect. Uh, you know, it may become individually identifiable. Now, does this guarantee that it's not identifiable? Well, not necessarily. You may have only, you know, you could possibly have 20,000 people and only one of them were born in 1975. Uh, in fact, you could probably do a pretty good job of putting out a data set early on January 1st 
that would contain an individually identifiable person by listing their year of birth as 2007. Uh, the safe harbor rules, the way they're worded, would allow that. Uh, of course, you wouldn't be able to put the, you, know, you probably have to release or remove the date that you publish the data set so that eventually people might think, oh, I don't know that anymore. So there are problems with these safe harbor rules. But they do give us some ideas. This, they, they give us some ideas that reasonably large groups are okay. That 20,000 people is almost certainly okay. So if you've got a 1 in 20,000 shot of identifying an individual, that's probably going to pass muster. Less than that, maybe, can't be certain. Well, what's the real problem here? One of the things with privacy, we concentrate so much on this individual identifiability, which we aren't sure what it means. But if we think back to what we said privacy was all about, it's individually identifiable and an intrusion. There's got to be some potential for misuse or some potential for harm. I mean, do you mind your data being known? Do you, do you really mind that I know, you know, would, would you really be upset if I were to know, you know, certain facts about you that you might not want your parents to know? Well, that depends. Do you think I would talk to your parents? Uh, if you think the answer is no, then... You might, not, you might not mind that. Uh, people go talk to attorneys and tell them things that they certainly would not want their family, friends, corporate competitors to know. It's because they believe that data won't be misused. Um, how, many of, how many of you have made information available that you know is that is widely reasonably widely available that there that you wouldn't want available to everyone. How many have done that at some point? Quite a few of you. Uh, generally, that happens because you feel the risk of misuse is relatively small. Uh, you know, why why have you know why why did you do that? Was that just a case of some, you did something that you didn't know about and you wouldn't do it again? Or is it something that you feel you would do again, make this data available? That they wouldn't want everybody to know. You know I, I think a lot of that is that risk of misuse. So let's imagine a scenario where we can start talking about misuse and bringing that into the equation. Say we'd like to release a data set for diabetes research. And just to make this simple, let's assume that it is just demographic information, not specific medical details. So what's the risk? What is it that can be, you know, what is the bad information that can come out of releasing this data set? Or the, the, the privacy risk. 
Yeah. Yeah, be not, be, you could be denied insurance, and why might you be denied insurance? They can identify you as having diabetes. So, in a sense, we can limit the the risk is finding out that you have diabetes. Or to to make it kind of simpler from a, a view of working with it, the risk is saying, "Are you in the database?" So, you know, we've got a very simple, what is sensitive? Are you in the database? Are you not in the database? So this become a, made this a very simple problem. So here is a uh, proposal of, a, of another metric for how to deal with this. Given a set of public data, this is, is what is known, and then we have this private data set. So the public data is demographic information about everybody in the world. The private data set is this demographic information about a set of people with diabetes. Well, this delta presence holds for an anonymization of that private data set if the probability that an individual is in the data set, given that we see the anonymization, is between delta min and delta max. Why would, you know, why would I be worried about being identified as not being in the data set? Well, say it's a really large data set of, of diabetes patients. I might be able to predict pretty well that someone doesn't have diabetes by saying they're not in the data set. So I'll just say, if I don't know that you don't have diabetes, then I don't insure you. The same thing. So you may want to be able to say not only that I can't predict someone is in the database, but I can also not, you know, I can't really predict that they aren't in the database either. The idea here is that every individual is sufficiently hidden within T star that we can release T star. And the, the risk of of identifying the individual is small. So what's sufficient? If I were to tell you that I'm, I'm going to publish this data set and uh, there is a, you know, say I have diabetes and there is a 5% chance, you know, I, I'm in this data set, but you, from looking at the data set, you'd say there's a 5% chance that I am an individual in that data set. Is that, you know, would you think that that's a privacy problem? And that seems, you know, this data set maybe of a thousand people, and to say that, well, there's a 5% chance that I'm actually one of those people, how many people would, would view that as probably a, a privacy violation? How many people think it wouldn't be? Most of, most of you seem to be un, very unsure about this. Well, let's start talking about this, not in terms of just the disclosure, but let's actually talk about the harm. So the harm could be quantified. What is the harm? Well, I'm denied insurance. What's the cost associated with that? Well, diabetes patient, there's a cost of around 10000 a year. So we can, we can apply a, a dollar figure 
to what is the cost of being discovered in the database. The disclosure can be quantified. I can predict how likely I am to be dis discovered in that. But is that really what the adversary is learning? Well, the interesting thing about this is that if I were to ask you to say, right now, knowing nothing else, what is the likelihood that I have diabetes, what would you say? How many would say, you know, one in a thousand? One in ten thousand? One in a hundred? One person with one in a hundred. Um, one in ten? One person who knows something about diabetes. Seven percent of the population has diabetes. Um, you know, once, once you adjust of, of kind of the normal adult population. So, it's, it, even if you know nothing, somebody can make a, you know, is, is going to guess that oh, with 7% probability. So, if I disclose this database and say, well, you've got, you can take this individual and uh, I know that Chris has a 5% shot of being in this database. How much is that really changing your estimate? of the likelihood that I have diabetes. Not near as much as it would seem at first glance. It does help you some, but it doesn't all of a sudden go from zero risk to 5%. You already thought I had a 7% chance. Prior knowledge is key in understanding the risk of harm. So given this, it actually turns out that we can calculate the expected, we can set delta max to 0.05, you know, 5% probability that I've been identified, and the kind of expected cost working this out works out to be less than 100. You know, that's very close to noise in these things, much less than the commissions on insurance policies. So it's, uh, it turns out that if we start thinking about what is the potential for harm and what is the prior knowledge, it really can affect things. Now, the other thing about this little study here is if we take this notion of delta presence, just identifying someone in the database, and use something like k-anonymity as a measure, it turns out that it's really, it's a very wrong solution for this problem. Saying that I'm going to have to group, anonymize in a way that groups people into groups of K in order to meet that 5% disclosure standard doesn't really do a good job. It fails in two ways. One is you can't set a threshold of K above which you're going to not, you're going to pass that standard below which you won't. Actually turns out you can find a K anonymization that meets that standard, then you can increase K and end up with a K anonymization that doesn't meet that standard for this risk of disclosure. The second thing is even when you do, and this is just comparing, this is comparing a straightforward technique on the left side, the, the barred uh, histogram 
a, a fairly simple technique which tries to directly optimize towards this delta presence measure with a fair, one of the better canonymity algorithms that's out there. And the vertical line or the vertical height corresponds to the amount of distortion in the database. Uh, loss metric is for those of you who've read the anonymity literature. It corresponds to how much you have to change the data, how, how much information you have removed from the data in order to anonymize it. And we have to remove a lot more information when canonymizing the data. In fact, effectively eliminating all information from the data for many of these values in order to get a data set that meets this property of limiting the ability to find any individual in that data set. Uh, so that's an example of some of the, the difficulties here with these metrics is they don't always agree with the problems that we have. So where do we go on this? And I'd like to see some discussion here. I think there's a couple things we really need to be able to start to quantify and talk about. One is the risk. What is the knowledge that an adversary could gain from the data that is being disclosed, knowledge that is being disclosed. What does an adversary really stand to learn from this? And the second, what is the potential for harm from this knowledge? Now in that one case we can come up with a fairly straightforward economic way of measuring it. Uh, in other cases this is more difficult, but there have been some studies done on how people measure their own risks, their own harms, how they understand these. If you start to be able to pull these in so that you can, can work with it, uh, then you can give better people a better view of the risk. When you walk into a hospital, how many of you have been into a hospital or medical clinic or whatever in the last two years? Most of you. How many of you have signed paperwork that talks about how they will protect and what they may do with your data? Yeah. How many of the how many of you really feel that uh, that in doing so you're allowing them to disclose data that you're you're giving them the right to disclose data in ways that you might not really want? Yeah. How many of you didn't read those closely? <laughs> okay, that covers the rest. Anyway. Um, part of the problem is. They, we're, we're not given good information on what the potential risk is, what the potential harm is. And I think if we can better quantify that, better understand that, so that when you walked in, it, you would be told, you know, we may use your data in studies, but in doing so, we will anonymize it such that the, nobody would be able to have a better estimate than you know, 1% chance of identifying any information about you. And given the, and we will ensure that the, this will only be released if whatever syndrome you have 
occurs in at least 2% of the population. Therefore, someone is, is going to learn very little information about you, even if they do think they have identified you in this database. Uh, it, that's probably not the right way to word it yet. But if we could start providing information like that to people, they could make choices. The second thing is benefit. What do you get out of disclosure? Most people are really willing to disclose their private data for very little benefit. Uh, prime example is these grocery store discount cards. How many of you have and use one of these grocery store discount cards? How many of you don't do it for privacy reasons? A couple of you. How many of you feel you're paying something by not using it for privacy reasons? You know the way around it. Uh, suggestion, just tell them, I don't have one, but I'd like the discount anyway. They'll always run it through. Or you can, you know, and so what are you doing? What are we really paying for our you know, to give our privacy. What are we getting paid? The slight convenience of not having to ask them to give us the discount anyway. Uh, most of us are willing to give up our privacy for very little in return. Uh, understanding, being able to tell people. We use data in medical studies for training doctors and by allowing us to use this data, there is very little risk to you, and it'll mean we're going to have better doctors and better medicines. And people will find that very valuable. The key here is we're asked to provide informed consent. The consent we provide. The informed we don't have. And that's really something that I think we need to work on, is how do we inform people? How do we let people know what's important about privacy and how this, how this affects them and how it doesn't affect them? So that we can end up with useful data sets, things that are you know, very beneficial, have societal, you know, societal benefit to disclosing and using this data, and not be faced with this occasional knee-jerk reaction of, of on some particular point it hits the media and all of a sudden there's big privacy concerns that may or may not be real or, or important. Any thoughts on this? Any ideas? There are several of us working in this area, um, Farabors, myself, uh, Professor Bertino has been working in this area. We come at it more from the, the mathematical side. There are others who come more from the policy side, understanding privacy. But I think this is a, a big frontier for computer security, is getting this distinction between confidentiality of you don't release the data, period, uh, unless someone is specifically authorized to use it. And privacy, there are cases where it's okay to release the data because there is no potential for harm. There's, you know, it's not going to affect an individual. And therefore, we can start having wider use.
Any other thoughts on this? What are some ways you can uh, assign a risk for something that's non-monetary, like physical harm, for example? Um, that's it. That's that's a very that's a very interesting one. Physical harm, and actually, that is one where we do have ways of assigning monetary values. They tend to be. Uh, they, they tend not to be very consistent, though. Uh, you just start looking at the courts and the lawsuits and, and, and liabilities, and people try to assign these. Uh, there are people's perceptions, and there's been some work done in understanding people's perceptions of risk and, and belief in, in risk. And you can start, uh, start using that as, as gradation of levels. This is something you are very concerned about, you are mildly concerned about, you are not concerned about. Uh, and I, th I think within, you know, within some of this, I mean, to some extent, you start by tying these levels to things where, you know, you start with things where you understand and can quantify, and then you tie it to things which are harder to quantify and and then eventually we'll have to develop those relationships. But yes, it does become very difficult. Um, with, within the U.S. at least, we generally do manage to have ways to tie a number to, or you know, to tie a dollar figure to everything. Um, it's, uh, and that's what keeps the lawyers so busy. The other, yeah. Um, I find it interesting that the view IRB has on their research um, whenever you, you want to submit like human research-based projects. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that I wanted to say is it might be possible to maybe apply this methodology within IRB approval so that whenever you want to release your data, you might want to follow these anonymity or whatever procedures, mathematical procedures that you have. Because so far, whenever you want to submit stuff for um, to the IRB, it's mostly what you say and what they believe. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting. That's a way that the uh, human subjects research uh, have has fudged this issue. Is they specifically say, like for example, it is exempt if it is not individually identifiable. Uh, and there is, is no risk of harm to individuals. There are certain things under which it becomes exempt. But then they leave it to the individual IRB to figure out what those terms mean. And I agree that giving, giving IRBs better tools to understand those terms would be helpful. And in fact, if this could get to the point eventually where we could codify some of these things in the, in the human subjects research regulations, I think that would be a great a great contribution to start saying individually identifiable means well you probably wouldn't want to just say you know that the probability or, or the, that your confidence in any particular individual is, is less than some value because it also probably has to tie into the risk of harm but if you could somehow combine those and get that in so that there are at least standards for the IRBs I think that would be it would both make the approvals process much easier, at least for those of us who do work with with data rather than real 
you know, with data about people rather than the people themselves. Uh, and would also kind of set precedent to maybe start codifying some, some of these privacy laws in ways that are actually operational and allow you to say something about use of the data. So I agree that's a good place to be working. Any other? How many of you have ever dealt with uh, human subjects research projects, IRBs? Very few of you. How many of you have ever done surveys as part of your research? <coughs> okay, I'm glad to see there aren't many people out there that have done surveys as part of their research that haven't dealt with IRBs because something as simple as doing a survey, that is human subjects research and you have to get approval. Um, it's, you know, there are some ways around these, but, uh, but pretty much anything, if, you, if you've got something that you intend to publish and it involves data about humans, you better read up on those rules. Okay. I think we're about time. Any other, any last questions here? Okay. Next week, we, uh, Next week we'll have um, Stu Shapiro from MITRE Corporation who is, does a lot of work in uh, access policy. And I, I mean not at the very high policy levels, but actually when you start dealing with systems and how you control access to the information on those systems. Uh, it actually has some interesting background in, in studying history in, uh, in computer science and, and how this relates to privacy and security.